there. This is Rob Fay filling in on the Jazz Joe Hall Show this week. Thank you for stopping by to check out the podcast. Sheila Regeer stops by. She's a former executive director of the National Council of Welfare talking to us about guaranteed basic income. Leslie McBain on the many needs that we have as we close in on the one-year anniversary of drug decriminalization in BC. And Prem Gill, CEO of Creative BC, talking to us about the state of BC's film industry. Thank you for reviewing. Thank you for subscribing. And most importantly, thank you for listening to CKNW. Well, it's an idea that has been flirted with since, gosh, the 70s, this idea of a basic income program. Canada continuing to take baby steps towards a basic income program that uh, I guess some would say would address poverty. Now, I think this got a little bit more momentum during the pandemic as we got to see the CERB, which paid out $2,000 a month to millions of Canadians. And it actually raised the possibility of a permanent income program. To talk about this a little bit more, Sheila Bergier, she's the executive director of the National Council of Welfare. Sheila, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rob. Well, I know we have bandied this about since I was in diapers, but uh, could this ever gain enough steam to actually get over the hill? You know, I think it will. And I think, unfortunately, it's going to be for the very sad reason that the need just keeps growing and growing. I mean, the positive news is, as you described, we've got CERB. We've got the experience of that. We know what it did. We've had... OAS, GIS, and child benefits in place for decades, we know what works. Like, we know it works. We know we can do it. That's the good news. And what's, what's terrifying to me is just to see how much, especially in big cities, uh, you're in, in a major city, I'm in Toronto, I mean, you see people living in tents. You see people lining up at food banks that you never thought would have to be there. Mm. So we, this is bigger than, I think, historical concerns about poverty. I think there's just this mass insecurity that so many people are feeling. Guaranteed basic income, in its simplest terms, designed to provide individuals with a, a stable income that covers basic living expenses, food, housing, health care, mm-hmm. But I think the the first question that anybody would ask is, who's going to pay for this? Well, we're paying for it already. And we're paying for it in bad results that are not getting us anywhere. So a lot of what is going to go into a basic income guarantee is redesigned policy. So you're going to take money that's already out there in little dribs and drabs all over the place, and you're you're going to redesign that into something that addresses everything more comprehensively. Um, You're going to pull in programs like GST credits, for example, that that give out money. The the money part of social assistance, we would hope with a, you know, reasonably high benefit level that that social assistance would be redundant. That funding would go in there. And then we've got Masses of money that we're paying in the healthcare system, in the criminal legal system, in the education system, for people who are not able to live the lives they could. It's a compelling argument. Sheila Regeer is the chairperson of the Basic Income Canada Network, a retired federal public servant, and again, a former executive director of the National Council of Welfare. So Sheila, you're pretty well versed in this. We've talked about the pros, but obviously there's going to be a faction of Canadians out there. They say, well, this allows Canadians to just sit back on their duff and not really have to worry about it because they just know the check's coming. There's a lot of misnomers with this, and there's a lot of preconceived notions as to that this is just going to 
nobody's going to have to work for anything anymore. It's just going to fall in their lap. What, what, what's wrong in that statement? Oh, there are a good few things wrong with that. To start with, we are talking basic income, and most people have aspirations and desires beyond that. Um, one of the things, again, I'm going back to the positive, but one of the ba- things a basic income does is allow you that stability that you talked about for people to build on their aspirations. People will want more. Not very many people are going to be able to survive, you know, for very long. The other reason is simply that there is no evidence at all that this is actually the way humans behave when they have an income guarantee. That stability and that security allows them to reduce their anxiety now, to get healthier, to be able to do better in the future. So the concerns about this, I think, are something else in a way, and I think it's more about people now having lots of control over other people might not have that same control when people have the ability to make their own lives their mm-hmm. own way. Yeah, I see where you're going with that, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Sheila, what do you think about this from the political element? Is this something that you know a politician can hang his or her hat on and, and make waves, or is this something that maybe most politicians probably want to stay away from? I think at this period, in this period of time, I think this is something politicians really should be able to hang their hats on. Um, seriously, we have so many challenges in this country. People are talking about a poly crisis, crisis in mental health, crisis in inflation, crisis in job precarity, crisis in not knowing what AI is going to bring us next. So if for a credible politician with some integrity who really, really understands what's going on for average people out there, I think this could be a real sell. Um, but I'm not a politician, <laughs> and the, the political cycle often doesn't lend itself well to good policy making. But as I said, a basic income guarantee has a lot of solid policy making behind it. It's been modeled. It's been tried. We see the same pattern of results everywhere. So there's a lot to work with. Well, Sheila, as I mentioned earlier, you make a compelling argument. I'm going to open up the phones to our listeners and we'll chew on some of the bones that you gave to us. Sheila, thank you for your time this afternoon. Thank you. Calls for more addiction treatment. That's what a lot of people want. A species drug decriminalization now enters its second year. And to talk a little bit more about this, because I'd love to get some perspective uh, beyond just the generalities. Leslie McBain is co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm. Kind enough to join us here. Leslie, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, let's get into this. How would you say year one went as far as drug decriminalization in British Columbia? Well, I don't think it went badly. There was... um, I don't think there's a tremendous amount of action on it as um, the the, uh, criminal justice system has been uh, sort of stepping back from this uh, issue. The amount of drugs that a person could carry uh, and not go into the criminal justice system was 2.5 grams. It's a very small amount. And um, so it's been sort of in a holding pattern. It has not, however, uh, stopped drug use. It hasn't stopped deaths, and it hasn't started people going, you know, rushing to treatment. 
which is something that I think we want to get into because obviously there's uh, you need facilities, you need places for these drug users to go so that they can continue to get treatment. Uh, you know, I, I feel like drug decriminalization is the first half of the puzzle, but it's the second half that still needs some fine tuning. Would that be a fair assessment? Well, I think drug decriminalization, the decriminalization is really not of drugs. It's, it's decriminalizing people who would possess illicit drugs. And there is a, there's a fine line there, but there's a line. Um, I don't think uh, drug decri- or, uh, decriminalization as it stands is, um, go- it's more of a, uh, it's a statement really to the public to say, look, People who use drugs are not criminals, and we're gonna we're gonna say that in this in this uh, decriminalization project. Um, and I think we need to keep it, and we need to expand upon it, and we need to take a good hard look at what the statistics are, which of course we don't have yet. Um, it, it's absolutely necessary, but it's not uh, helping stop the deaths, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's not helping the number of people who need treatment. So it's it's sort of a standalone uh, project. And I know this is close to you. Moms Stop the Harm is a network of Canadian families impacted by substance use related to harms and deaths. So if you could redo the year, knowing what you know now, what would you change? Oh, I would definitely change the uh, province, uh, the premier and the ministry, ministry and minister of mental health and addictions stand on safer supply. Um, it seems they have all been very reticent and hesitant to take that bold, courageous step, which is to make more pilot projects, um, make safer supply um, available to more people who need them. Um, I would, yeah, if I had a magic wand, that's where it would be tapping. I, I, I've seen a couple of the safe supply locations on the downtown east side because that's obviously closer to where I live. But across this province, because this is a province-wide issue, do you feel that the drug users in this entire province, beat up in the interior on the island, are they served by these pilot projects? Or is this something that really hasn't reached all points of this province? You're absolutely right. It has not. Um, we have, um, I think, two in Vancouver and one, uh, let's see, one in Nanaimo one in Victoria, maybe just one in Vancouver. I'm not positive on that. But no, for the rest of the province, no, people in the more rural and remote communities and even in, even in some of the larger um, cities up north um, do not have access to pilot projects or to safer supply and hardly any access to profession, you know, the professionals, the addictions doctors and so on. So they are very underserved and the, the number of deaths reflect that. Leslie McBain is the co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm, joining us here on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Uh, Leslie, I look at the decriminalization, and it's obviously a super polarizing topic, but let's talk about where we're at with the treatment facilities for these users. Obviously, like I said, drug decriminalization is a small piece of the puzzle. Do we have enough facilities? Do we have enough hands on on site to make sure that these people that are coming in, the, the, the ones that are lucky enough to survive, um, can actually see this through to the end? No, <laughs> in a word, um, there are not enough facilities. There are not enough facilities that are subsidized and certified and regulated. 
And that's what we, as Mom Stop the Harm, we advocate for more oversight of the facilities. But, you know, David Eby, our premier, has um, told us that he has a billion dollars, you know, in his uh, bank account for further and expanding treatment facilities. I wonder how long this will take. Um, if it's three years and you've got three years worth of people using drugs waiting for this kind of treatment, how many people, how many more people will die? I sort of look at it as number of deaths and number of missed opportunities. So we do need more and we need them yesterday. You know, we need them now. Um, and also people need to know how to access treatment and detox and all those things. So the education is uh, lacking as well. I'm sorry I don't have very good things to say about how the government over the last seven years has has progressed in terms of this emergency. Um, it's still an emergency after all this time. Well, I can tell you one thing with certainty. Leslie, you're not the only person that has had some ill things to say um, about this government. <laughs> you know, the thing that catches me by surprise, and I appreciate the time, we'll finish up with this one. Drug poisoning remains the leading cause of death amongst people aged 10 to 59 in BC, and it takes six lives per day in this province. Are those numbers not jarring enough to get the ball rolling? Like you talk about the government kind of dragging their feet. At what point do you say, okay, enough's enough. We've got to really push this through. Exactly. That's my question as well. I mean, 13,000, over 13,500 people have died in this province since the emergency was declared. So at what point, yes, does the emergency really land on the, on the uh, policymakers? Um, it's, it's, Really stunning to us, um, you know, in Mom Stop the Harm and we who advocate for for supporting the lives of people who use drugs. We can't believe that we're still in this place. So, yeah, that's my answer. It, it's, it's amazing that yeah. we haven't addressed it. Your time was valued. Thank you for the call. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank Bye-bye. you. I think we loved when we were first anointed as Hollywood North. Remember, we were X-Files. We were talking about all these Highlander shows that were being filmed up here and all kinds of, you know, I I just think of the vast history that we have here in in the province of British Columbia, be it commercials, be it feature films, be it TV shows, Smallville. It's just been a wonderful time. But since the pandemic, a little bit of a shift. There's no doubt about it. So let's talk with Prem Gill. She's the CEO of Creative BC. Prem, good afternoon. Hi there. Sorry, I almost caught myself uh, daydreaming about all the many things we've had done here in Vancouver. It's been great. But uh, I'll start with this one. The numbers aren't totally in for 2023, but how would you say this year was when it came to the film industry? Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't a regular year for us. You know, we everybody knows that the strikes that were happening in Hollywood had an impact on productions all over the world. And certainly here in British Columbia, they did as well. And, you know, we didn't see the amount of production that we would normally expect in any given year. There's particularly a slowdown that kind of started in that late May, June period. You know, while there wasn't, it wasn't like there was zero, there was a lot of production happening, but not at the capacity that we've had in past years and certainly the the first year or two after that 2020 year you know bc saw a pickup in production in general so it's been tough for you know people who work in the industry but we're optimistic that as we head into the new year and production returns that bc remains at the top of that list as a hub for production prem how did the writers strike assist in this year within the industry here in bc was it was it tougher than anticipated 
Yeah, it was both the writers and then, of course, the actors. Yes. The strike was happening at the same time. So they both had an impact. So there was initially, you know, a slowdown because of the writers. And then once the the actors themselves were on strike and it went on, you know, I think longer than folks were anticipating initially, that it had an impact. There weren't uh, productions returning or starting up in the same capacity, especially in that kind of summer period that's really busy here generally and leading into the fall and really up until the holiday break. You know, definitely it had an impact. There were, you know, folks that probably hadn't worked in many months. Um, but hopefully before the holiday break, they started to get some calls and hear about things that might be happening in the new year. Creative BC, I didn't realize until I started researching, you guys cover so many different things and help out so many different people. How do you protect yourself during the, the low tide? Well, really for us, it's about how do we support the industry? So we are, we're a nonprofit. We're supported by the BC government to support the economic development of different creative sectors in the province and film and television is one of them. So we're always looking at our programs, you know, our um, grant programs and how we support the industry through our film commission services to ensure that, you know, as the needs change that we can pivot we, what we can within those programs, but also really Supporting the sector and really understanding, especially when we're trying to attract business to BC, what's happening in terms of crew availability, what about infrastructure, what kind of studio spaces are available, um, really actively, you know, reaching out to BC's regular clients in Los Angeles on, you know, what's happening in BC and and uh, what can what they can expect when they come to the province. So that's really a large part of what the Film Commission work is that's within our organization. And really, it's about the entire province. We have production going on in almost every corner of the province, and we have film commissioners in all the regions. So really, we're constantly looking at, you know, how do we continue to ensure that, you know, we're there to help position BC as a strong place to continue to want to bring your show to or your film. Prem Gill is the CEO of Creative BC, joining us here on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. I, in the article I was reading, I don't know if I can credit you with this, but somebody said that they didn't like the title of Hollywood North anymore, the quote-unquote title of being Hollywood North. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, walk I me through that. I something like that. I just say something like that, more only to say that I think we have our own brand. I don't think we need to uh, call ourselves something that is based on another um, brand. People in Hollywood know Vancouver. They know the region. So I really think it's more about the pride. It's not necessarily saying, well, don't call us Hollywood North. But generally, I was just, you know, suggesting that, hey, we are people know Vancouver. You know, people make uh, references to it, even in, you know, Hollywood television shows that are made here and not here that, you know, actors are going up to Vancouver or, you know, major shows are landing here. We have a really robust domestic production sector as well. We have over 150 BC-based production companies. You know, we have a really talented producer base here. We've had some, you know, shows that are Canadian shows that have been shot here in the last few months. So we have a lot to be proud of, and I think we should own it rather than, you know, try to use a descriptor of another place to describe our success. Love it. A great way to finish, Prem. Thank you for the insight on this today. I, I saw the title, Shaky Confidence for BC Film Industry, but I got, uh, I got a feeling we're going to be okay. I think so. All right. Thank you, Prem. Let's do this again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. 
on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.